Hello, HTI listeners. How are you doing? This is Krishna Massar with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about Gustavus Adolphus. Gustavus Adolphus is, of course, the Swedish king of the 17th century who got Sweden involved in what is now modern-day Germany during the Thirty Years' War between Catholic and Protestant forces. So Sweden got involved in the in this brutal war in 1630, and what, what I'm going to talk about, I'm not going to give so much detail about his conduct of campaign necessarily or even his political life, but I'm going to talk a little bit about that and also give a fair amount of background to the war itself. But what I kind of wanted to focus on for this episode is the military reforms that Adolphus brought into the Swedish army. And I'll go a little bit into how the reforms helped him win uh, win battles in Germany, but uh, that will be the focus of the podcast rather than a step-by-step in uh, detail of of the campaign itself. So uh, with that said, let's. I just want to give a quick little message here, and we'll get right back into the episode. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I sure hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the historical thoughts and interpretations episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the podcast via Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. If you would like to donate, go to my Patreon link at patron.podbean.com slash historical thoughts. And again, that's patron.podbean slash historical thoughts. Now, let's get back to the episode. So before looking at Gustavus Adolphus's intervention in the Thirty Years' War, we'll first give just a brief little introduction to the war itself, uh, which was fought from 1618 to 1648, mostly, again, in what is modern-day Germany. At that time, that territory was, uh, was under the control of the... Habsburg's family, uh, which ruled the Holy Roman Empire, which is uh, interesting because it wasn't quite Roman, but there's a long history. That's a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother subject. So the Thirty Years' War was characterized by hunger, pillaging, and death. According to military analyst and historian Gwyn Dyer, 29,000 villages in Bohemia alone were destroyed in the fighting. This was a war without limit. After the devastating war in en- ended in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia, European nations began developing a system of limited war because the, the conflict was so long and so terrible. There were numerous factors leading to the start of the Thirty Years' War. For one, C.B. Wedgwood notes that markets were unstable, and there were a lot of crises happening in Europe at that time. In 1581, a few decades before the Thirty Years' War started, Ivan the Terrible of Russia was fighting the Livonian War, which which ended up being not very good for him. He conquered the Khazan Khanate in 1552, but he didn't have that much luck in the Baltics, where Sweden was able to conquer Livonia and Estonia. And also Sweden had signed an alignment an alliance with with the Dutch, which had the potential of giving the two countries control of Europe's northern waterways. And, of course, another big player was the previously mentioned Holy Roman Empire. And though the Holy Roman Empire had dominance over Central Europe, it was 
its governance was very complicated. So the Holy Roman Empire, it wasn't a unified um, uh, place. They had an emperor, but they also had various tons of principalities within. And there were certain ones that were electors and the emperor was actually elected. And, but this, so this was a complicated system of government and the central authority was starting to break down. And there was, there were consequential conflict over territorial claims. So central and northeastern Europe with, thanks to the Livonian War and the Holy Roman Empire kind of, you know, not working as well anymore. Things there was something ripe for a conflict. However, the issue of religion was one of the greatest contrib uh, contributing factors to the deteriorating order. The Protestant Reformation had begun in early in the 16th century in the whole in the lands of the Holy Roman Empire. Religious wars shortly engulfed Europe, including the Huguenot Wars in France from six, 1562 to 19, 1593 and a Dutch rebellion against the ruling Spanish Empire, which had, you know, this war had started uh, at a similar time in 1567, and this one lasted for 80 years. After 1552, many church lands in the Holy Roman Empire were secularized, but a campaign of re-Catholicization, so remember Martin Luther, he starts the Protestant Reformation in the Holy Roman Empire, the Protestant Revolution or Reformation spreads, and then there's a campaign to of uh, the Catholic Church to try and take these these lands back. And so this re-Catholicization was restoring the old religious landscape. So Protestant rulers and princes were this gave them concerns, and so this religious crusade uh, of re-Catholicization could force their Protestant subjects to convert back to Catholicism. And they were also afraid of the co close cooperation between the Austrian and Spanish branches of the Habsburgs family. Um, the Habsburgs represented authoritarianism as well, of course, the, a threat to the Protestant governments. So, of course, factions were started. The Catholics had a Catholic League, which was made up of such principalities of Bavaria, Mainz, Cologne, and other Catholic um, uh, electorates and principalities within the whole Roman Empire, although the Protestants also had their own Protestant Union. And so, so this whole situation with, with the religious tension within the whole Roma, Roman Empire and the breakdown of central control, this is where the Thirty Years' War started. And it's said to have started with the Bohemian Revolt of May 23rd, 1618. Shortly before this cataclysmic event, 10 deputy governors were appointed to rule in Prague in modern-day Czech Republic. Seven of these governors were Catholic, and these included two noblemen who refused to sign what was called the Letter of Majesty. And the Letter of Majesty was an agreement meant to guarantee religious freedom for Protestants. The Letter of Majesty also protected Catholic and Protestant church property rights. Unfortunately for the Protestants, the Letter of Majesty fell on deaf ears in Prague. Ecclesiastical authorities forbade Protestants from building churches in the towns of Klostergrad and Braunau, as these towns were deemed to be under the jurisdiction of the church and not the crown. Because, you know, with there were in the Holy Roman Empire, there was also the idea of church lands, even principalities. Uh, there were princes that were 
part of the church structure as well. So that's another thing. So Klausagrab and Braunau were considered parts, uh, they were church land and not, not part of the state. So the church, the Catholic church authorities, they said, nope, these Protestants are not allowed to build churches in these towns. So the Holy, Holy Roman Emperor supported the side of the church authorities in this matter. The ten deputy governors began arresting rebellious Brownell bureaucrats, and Protestant deputies retaliated on May 23rd by literally throwing three members of the Prague government out of a window. This is known as the defenestration of Prague. And so supposedly these men had survived. Um, you know, <laughs> when you're reading the history of this, you get two different accounts, you know, you have one side which is like, oh they threw them and the, um, they survived because they landed on you know garbage or refuse on the on the window but if, i've also heard that there were stories like oh you know angels you know uh carried them down slowly you know and so it depends on whether you take a a protestant side or a catholic side i suppose so with the defenestration of prague the Re protestant rebels established uh, soon established a provisional government and also started to set up an army. The Holy Roman Empire reacted by invading Bohemia and foreign nations soon joined the conflict. To help their fellow Habsburgs, the Spanish sent an army across Germany. One of the Habsburgs' enemies, the Duke of Savoy, sent a mercenary army to assist the Bohemian rebels. Although this army saved Bohemia's fighting men from the Imperials, a statement a stalemate resulted neither the rebels nor the imperialists could could deal a decisive conclusive strike eventually on august 26 1619 the bohemians rejected ferdinand ii the holy roman emperor as their king and instead re-elected frederick the son-in-law to the english king james i who was also the scottish james vi you can see why this stuff gets quite complicated so, but Frederick of Bohemia's reign was short-lived as he was forced to flee the area when a combined Imperial Catholic League force defeated the Bohemian army at the Battle of the White Hill on November 8th, 1620. So he was in power in Bohemia for a little over a year. This was not the end as the Holy Roman Emperor decided to continue hostilities against the Bohemians after the Battle of the White Hill. The Protestants also wanted to keep fighting and the Thirty Years' War was still continuing. And traditionally, the Thirty Years' War is divided into four stages. The first stage, and so we just talked about the first stage, you know, the kind of Bohemian Revolt, ran from 1618 until about 1623. And it covers the Rebellion of Bohemia and also the taking over of the Palatinate. The Danish period is the second stage, taking place from 1624 to 1629. The third stage... The Swedish period, which is the focus of this podcast, started in 1630 and lasted for four years. Finally, the fourth and final stage was the period of French intervention, and this lasted from 1635 until the finalization of the Peace of Westphalia, which occurred again in 1648. So again, we're going to focus on the Swedish episode and the tactics that Gustavus Adolphus used and how he reformed the army. Uh, around at around this time but first we will pay attention to a major factor in how the Thirty Years War was fought with mercenaries so around this time European armies were typically filled with men hired by or hired through contract 
Professional generals had officers specializing in the rapid enlistment and training of men. Often, soldiers were recruited without regard to race or creed. Mercenaries became popular because attempts to create national armies under government, governmental control had failed. Switzerland and other poor European nations were heavy users of these soldiers of fortune. Although hiring mercenaries may have been a quick fix to the problem of recruitment, they came with great risk. For one, mercenaries did cost a lot of money. Perhaps not, you know, in the short term they're expensive, but they're a little easier to get, but building a national system, that takes a lot of time, right? And so, but mercenaries still cost a lot. They're, this is their job, this is their profession, so they, they will demand a pretty penny. And so mercenary armies were, were small because they cost so much. In the 1500s, there was, the, there was only an average of 10,000 men per side in a battle. And even though soldiers of fortune were sometimes effective fighters, they were prone to mutiny, defection, and desertion. This is especially true if they were underpaid or did not have uh, enough supplies. C.V. Wedgwood noted that, that mercenaries would sometimes fight under a banner, and so if this banner or unit was captured, they, would, they could switch sides. And, so, and, and another thing is, too, that mercenaries were difficult to control. They didn't have the loyalty that a national army would, would, um, would, would teach them, right? So, and even Gustavus Adolphus found, uh, found this out during his German campaign. And he had set up a strict disciplinary code in 1621, but mercenaries he did hire sometimes caused breakdowns in the discipline of his army. And Adolphus himself said that mercenaries were, quote, faithless, dangerous, and expensive. And in fact, although famine and disease killed many German people, these faithless, dangerous, and expensive men are they receive much of the blame for causing the, the hardship suffered during the Thirty Years' War. A civil war, in fact, kind of raged between German civilians and the soldiers. Village attacks, camp raids, and killing became commonplace. And soldiers came up with hellish torture methods to inflict upon their victims, and this is pretty nasty stuff. The Using, using pistols as thumbscrews and roasting of people in ovens to to get supplies, to, to steal things. And mercenaries were choking the life out of Germany in brutality and the avarice that, that tempts ever-growing and undersupplied armies. And this, this is what the Thirty Years' War is famous for. So now there's some background. So there's some of the political background and also the, the, the conduct of the war itself with, with, uh, with mercenaries and some of the, the factions that were involved during um, during the time period of, of the conflict. So now let's finally get into uh, Gustavus Adolphus's involvement in the war. So Gustavus Adolphus plunged Sweden into the Thirty Years' War on July 4th, 1630, when he landed at Usedom in Pomerania on the Baltic Sea. So uh, like many commanders getting involved, like many leaders getting their countries involved into a war, his reasons were were numerous. They uh, he had complained for one about you know other rulers intercepting his letters, and he was upset about not being given a seat at the Peace of Lübeck, um, and the Peace of Lübeck was what uh, a treaty that ended Danish involvement in in the war which we mentioned earlier, and 
also in in the past, as as Gustavus Adolphus was king in Sweden, he had he had had experience with uh, before getting involved in in Germany. He had also been fighting. Uh, he had fought the Danes before, but also uh, Russia and and the Poles as well. And the Holy Roman Empire had given aid to uh, to Poland. And so he, he was upset about, about this. And also he was afraid of Habsburg's potential, the potential for Habsburg's control of the Baltic Sea. So the Baltic Sea being it's a very strategic area in, in North, Northern and North and Northeastern Europe. So he was afraid of, of this, of these designs. And so he was meaning to consolidate control over the, the Baltic. However, again, just like with the Thirty Years' War, uh, we mentioned that religion was perhaps the main factor. And he, and Gustavus Adolphus is no exception, he claimed the authority of a higher calling when he invaded Germany. And he claimed the authority of a religious ideal. Sweden was Protestant. And the Lutheran king said that he was not trying to harm the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor, but he wanted to defend, quote, against the disturbers of the public peace, both ecclesiastical and secular. His goal was to protect the general public, the general public political situation, as well as the Protestant faith in Europe. And I've just quoted uh, Jeffrey Parker in his book, The Thirty Years' War, and Robert O'Connell of Arms and Men. The small German Protestant powers were on their own, unable to stand up to Johann Tilly, who was the commander of the Catholic League, nor could they stand up against the imperial army of Albrecht von Wallenstein. And in 1627, Wallenstein and Tilly moved their armies to the Baltic Sea, and the Catholic armies were in control of the whole Jutland Peninsula. So, and eventually, Wallenstein was able to loan thousands of troops to Sigismund of Poland. And Again, Sigismund had been at war with Gustavus Adolphus for years. And so this combined Polish imperial force even defeated Sweden's army at Honigfelde on June 27, 1629. And after this, a French diplomat persuaded Adolphus to end his conflict with Poland. So a Swedish-Polish truce was signed, uh, the truce of Altmark was finally made the following September. But by 1630, Adolphus was ready to take his army into Germany now that he was at peace with Poland. So remember, again, the, the imperial forces were getting involved, right? So now, here's an op now that he has peace with Poland, here's an opportunity to try and retake control, to, um, to consolidate control in Northern Europe, and also to kind of push back against the Habsburgs' advances there. Catholic France which happened to be a political rival of uh, co-religious uh, Habsburg Spain, was also promising, uh, promising aid to the Swedes. In addition, Gustavus uh, preferred the idea of fighting on foreign land rather than waging war in his homeland. The Swedish Diet twice approved of his plans for Germany, so he had the support of his government. Sweden itself was also stable and peaceful, so he didn't have to worry about domestic strife while he was off on campaign. So now the Swedish military was prepared for its German expedition. And after fighting recent wars with Poland and Russia, the army was blessed with valuable combat experience. 
And additionally, the Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II, had moved his armies to uh, to Italy to combat the French because he thought he had, he, he had achieved victory in Germany. The Emperor had also dismissed Albrecht von Wallenstein and Johann Tilly of the Catholic League forces. He remained in the north with, with, a, with a, smaller, a smaller force. So the King of Sweden saw this as a op strategic opportunity and he went in thinking that this was an opportunity he could not afford to miss. So now we're moving on to the army. Robert O'Connell notes that uh, Adolphus built his fighting force around a conscript army. And Eric Fourteenth and Gustav Vasa, Adolphus's predecessor, created this army in the previous century. And in expectation of Dutch military reforms, Eric and Vasa made a standing army out of foreign mercenaries which Sweden had hired. Yet, sporadic wars with Denmark, Poland, and Russia weakened the Swede degraded and weakened the Swedish army, eventually nullifying these changes. And so when Gustavus Adolphus became king of Sweden in 1611, his army didn't have the discipline, organization, or training that successful armies require. And surely, Adolphus had to work hard to get his military into good fighting condition. So he admired the, uh, pre the just mentioned uh, Dutch military reforms, and these military reforms were done by the by one named Maurice of Orange, and he applied Maurice's military doctrines to his own army. So Maurice of Orange is known as the father of the professional Dutch army of the time, and in the words of uh, of Gunther Rothenberg uh, from his book Makers of Modern Strategy. Maurice of Orange changed the, quote, motley crowd of unreliable mercenaries and part-time militias. In his reforms, Maurice made sure that the soldiers were paid quickly. He also emphasized loyalty to one's unit, obedience, improvements in battle movements and maneuvers, and competent leadership. First, Maurice, Maurice reduced manpower, or the number of troops, as finances dictated. Second, Discipline and drilling were very important to him, and daily drilling not only brought men into instant obedience, but it also strengthened the unity of the military force. And this increased obedience and cohesion would translate into better combat performance. After Maurice introduced his reforms, the Dutch army was praised as the best European fighting force. Many European countries started to follow Maurice's example, especially the Protestant ones. So, as I mentioned earlier, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden implemented some of these reforms of uh, the Maurice of Orange. But I just want to break it down and kind of go into the changes that Adolphus made into various branches of the Swedish army. So, what he did was divided his army into uh, the infantry into companies of uh, 120 to 150 men, made to be six men deep. The tradition in Europe at the time was 10, right? So, but then he changed it to six. And then it was eventually changed to be three men deep versus the traditional 10. So this is a creation of the firing line because Gustavus Adolphus also emphasized the use of the musket. And also the muskets were were lighter. He They abandoned the heavy, heavy arquebusiers and then they, they, cre uh, they used lighter muskets and this allowed um, this; they were easy to use, and it also shortened the preparation time for for taking a shot. 
So, and Gustavus's army used, had smaller formations. So, remember I just mentioned in the infantry, it was a companies of about 120, 150 men. And these were, that eight of these companies uh, formed battalions of about 1,000 men. And again, Gustavus emphasized firepower, musketry. So, and he, he had a lot of muskets in each, in each company. So again, we have eight companies in one battalion and each company having about 72 musketeers. So more, 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 a little bit more than half of a company were, uh, were armed with, with musket guns. But so each company, if they have 72 musketeers, what are the other 53 armed with? The other 53 are armed with pikes. So again, pikes being very long spears, all right? And so Gustavus still used pikemen in large compact formations or maybe sometimes in an open order where the men are a bit more spread out. But why use pike if, they're, if you're using guns? Well, you know, at this time, guns are, are slow. You know, they, it's not like modern days where you fire about 30 rounds or so in a, in a standard weapon and then you reload, and then you're back at it. This took a long time to reload with with muskets. So you you have a pikeman, a man with a big, huge spear next to you. You know nobody's going to want to charge into a pike for <laughs> formation necessarily, right? So pikes were still there to uh, to defend, and also pikes could could also be used in massive, devastating shock attacks when supported by the muskets. If the pike formation is moving along and the muskets are moving along with them, that created a huge effective kind of a shock attack against against the enemy. So that's how Gustavus Adolphus infantry worked. You shortened, uh, shortened the line a little bit, moving from ten, 10 to 6 to eventually to 3, and also using pikemen along with the muskets to help support each other either in defense, the pike help defend the musketeer, uh, musketeers, or the pike go on the attack and the muskets can supplement that attack. So now let's talk a little bit about the cavalry or the horsemen. So cavalry were divided into squadrons of 115 men. So the cavalry, they replaced their lances with carbine or shorter guns. And armor was gotten rid of. Armor was discarded because at this point, even though guns are slow to reload and everything, but they're still powerful enough to go through armor. So there's no point in a cavalryman having having armor. And th there was also the concept of the dragoon was implemented in a way. So this uh, this was essentially horse riding infantry that would dismount when when needed. So they go up to an area, they can get off the horse, shoot, and then get on the horse and run back. And Gustavus's cavalry relied on close-in attack, or shock, which would, and the Poles had used this against him uh, in the wars between Sweden and Poland. And so despite Dragoons having firearms, Gustavus emphasized shock and close quarters combat with his cavalry. So he would station horsemen on the flanks of his formations as was tradition in Europe. It makes sense. You have cavalry ready to intercept any other cavalry force ready to attack your flanks. But he also placed cavalry behind his infantry in order to counterattack if the infantry was being beaten.
And finally, one more thing where we'll talk about Gustavus's use uh, or reforms of artillery. So as with guns, cannon were made to be lighter as well. And so you can see these changes made to the artillery from 1624. All old guns were melted to make smaller, newer ones. And there was also a particular piece called the pièce suédoise. There's your, your French there for a little bit. So the pièce suédoise was 450 pounds. It could be pulled by one horse by itself. And this was a, this was a cannon of small caliber of 2.2, about just over two and a half inches. And the cartridge was powder in a wooden case that would shoot the cannonball. And so it, it was meant to fire rapidly. Of course, it was very powerful, uh, but it was coming from a cannon after all. But it was emphasized rapid fire. And also it was a lighter cannon, so it was able to be more mobile. So as the battlefield changes, it's a lot easier to move cannon around. And tactically, artillery was usually placed in front of Gustavus's army or otherwise, or on otherwise uh, advantageous ground. So these things, so remember what I mentioned, just mentioned about, uh, about infantry. Reducing the, the size of the formation from 10, uh, from 10 men deep to three men deep the cavalry, they abandon, they use guns, but they also emphasize shock and moving in, just rapidly hitting, and even abandoning armor. So the key of this, of Gustavus's new offensive uh, aspect of his army, was mobility. Mobility was the key. European warfare up to this point had been based on on, on Swiss or so-called Spanish formations. So these were large formations of thousands of men. Powerful, they were very powerful, so they're like big, big forces just, just push right in. But they were unwieldy, especially with the use of artillery and other gunpowder weapons. So they're intimidating, but if you have enough artillery and enough gunpowder weapons, enough muskets or arquebusiers or, or any kind of weapon like that, you, you have a better chance. And so it, to kind of give a parallel to back to ancient times, well before gunpowder was ever used in, um, in warfare, you think of uh, Greek spear formations or phalanxes. So they're very powerful and they're excellent in certain situations. For example, at the, the Battle of Thermopylae, when the Spartans were able to, to defend a narrow area against a much more numerically superior Persian force, but they were able to essentially lock shields together and use the spear and just defend that narrow point. But unfortunately for the phalanxes, they can be destroyed easily if flanked. And movement and if and if they are moving, Thermopylae is one thing. When they defended a, a narrow area and they just stayed put and just had a wall of, of shields and spears. But movement of a phalanx relies on perfectly uniform movement. And so and also there's another parallel too, going back to the to the Dark Ages, the the shield wall. So the, if you have a, a Viking raid and going on a, uh, using a shield wall, the problem is if one person in the wall is weak or, or dies, the wall becomes very vulnerable to a sudden, to a sudden attack, right? And so as well with the phalanx, it's, it's unprotected on certain sides. So if, if they're flanked, they're really in trouble. And then, then if men decide to, you know, 
defend themselves and everything that wall begets it falls apart so you can you can move that parallel a little bit to these so-called Swiss or, Swiss or Spanish formations of big masses of men going out, but as as firepower comes in the form of cannon, you know, it's things need to change. And when Sweden was fighting its wars against Poland, the Poles were using fast cavalry. Maneuverability and swift action were more important than a than a powerful but slow, essentially a powerful but slow bulldozer. So, and note how Adolphus implements this this change by using smaller, less less large infantry formations and also lighter weapons. And also by dividing his infantry battalions into eight companies, these companies were able to move around and vary the formations as needed. And another thing about the cavalry is that the cuirassiers would, or the, the, the cavalry would move swiftly charge at the enemy, fire pistols, and charge into hand-to-hand -hand combat with swords. So this is a true shock attack. Before, many cavalry with firearms would fire on the enemy, turn around, and reload. This was known as the catacol. So somebody goes up, fires weapons, goes back, the next line goes up, fires, turns around, and then it then it just keeps going around it you know, going around in a circle like this but instead gustavus is saying run in with your horses fire and then engage with the sword and so so again this is maneuverability this is mobility and elements in gustavus's army they were meant to support each other artillery for long-range devastation cavalry that preferred to get in close and infantry that mostly had muskets but also had pikes for shock combat so the words of theodore Erol de dodge on his book uh, about gustavus adolphus is his his quotes are really good here i think the parent of grand tactics he says is the ability to maneuver without mobility bodies or armies cannot do this and speed was the watchword of Gustavus's tactics. It was his speed which won his victories. His motto was action, action, action. But to be able to put good tactics into action, you have to have a solid base. So remember what I said before about his previous Swedish kings, Eric and Vasa, trying to create a national army built around mercenaries. So, and that didn't work so well. So Gustavus Adolphus, what he did, he nationalized an army subservient to the state, supplemented with a militia recruited from local regions. So Gustavus did, did various things to make this nationalized army a reality. So probably one of the most important aspects of Sweden's new army were its organization and recruitment methods. So in 1625, Adolphus introduced a recruitment system in which local clergymen would keep records of men between 18 and 40 years of age. Usually only about 10% of men were actually called to military duty, but, the, but those who were called had to serve for 20 years. And soldiers were not paid with money while they served in Sweden, but they were rather rewarded with, with land. And so in this way, Gustavus created a, a Swedish territorial militia for home defense. And members of this, this militia could be moved into the army as needed. And at the time, according to Colonel Trevor Nevet Dupuy, Sweden was the only country in Europe with a national army 
based on a territorial militia. So another way that Gustavus created a nationalized army was that while most of the army was filled by conscription, the cavalry was a volunteer force. And also, Swedes made up the art majority of artillerymen. So he was able to rely on them a bit a bit more than having to hire artillerymen. And also, uh, just as a side note, Sweden was also uh, quickly uh, uh growing metal resources and so this allowed Adolphus to create the artillery field pieces he he required. So with all of this put together by the time of Sweden's involvement in the Thirty Years War Adolphus had a 76,000 man army and 43,000 of these were Swedes. He, again he also did use mercenaries but the majority of his army was was Swedish. So all of this put together changing the tactics to make sure that the Swedish army was more mobile. The creation of a national militia that could be used for home defense or be merged into an expeditionary force when needed. The idea of, of having a solid engineering corps, emphasizing the importance of trenches and other field works, you know, good and reliable logistics, all of, and even just the idea of having a common uniform. All of this put together turned Sweden's army into a formidable force by the time Gustavus Adolphus committed the Swedish army to Germany during the Thirty Years' War. So now I want to touch a little bit again on Gustavus Adolphus's relationship with mercenaries. So the core of his army was made up of Swedish natives, not soldiers for hire. However, the army was now primarily meant for homeland security, being built on the, around the concept of a territorial militia. When Gustavus Adolphus entered the Thirty Years' War, Sweden only had a population of one and a half million. So the king, therefore, had no choice but to hire German, Scottish, and English mercenaries to fight for him during his grand campaign in Germany. So eventually, as the campaign in Germany wore on, the proportion of Swedes in Gustavus' army became much less. And according to Gunther Rothenberg, the, by 1632, there were so many mercenaries and other forces in, in the Swedish army that less than 10% of 120,000 men were actually Swedish. However, this, this situation did allow Gustavus to use Swedish troops to defend his lines of communication and Sweden itself. So his most loyal and valuable troops, his citizens, protected his most valuable assets and centers. And Adolphus was able to teach Swedish tactics to his mercenaries, and he also disciplined them. He demanded loyalty from his soldiers to the Swedish flag and to his own ideals. And monthly readings of the Articles of War were also given to the troops. A daily prayer was mandated, and army chaplains played a crucial role in the army's morale and discipline. And according to C.V. Wedgwood, a quarter of the breaches of discipline defined in the military code called for execution as a punishment. So this was a way to try and control the potential chaos that would result from hiring mercenaries. However, Rothenberg also says that, when, that even with the king's strict discipline, order began to break down as soon as 1630. This happened partially because Adolphus was unable to supply his growing army adequately. Sweden was poor, and Adolphus's logistical arrangements also fell apart often, even though there were great in 
um, great efforts to try and make the logistics um, a working machine. Rothenberg also attributes the breakdown in discipline to the, quote, predominance of hard-bitten mercenaries. So no regardless of Adolphus's efforts to maintain discipline and control, this wasn't always possible. Combat discipline was still strong, but there were times when the Swedish army plundered the land, and Adolphus occasionally did allow this to happen. So after giving a 30,000-foot view, so to speak, of Gustavus's army and reforms, I want to talk a little bit about his army's campaign in Germany. So this campaign started in July 1630 with a, with a landing along at the mouth of the Oder River. And he came with an army of about 70,000 men, about 40,000 of them being Swedish. And so, but for the rest of this time, is so from July 1630 onward, he spends most of the year expanding his base while gathering troops and reducing towns. Rothenberg suggests that Adolphus was slow to act, in fact, and his expansion spread out his forces and it didn't convince potential, potentially friendly electors of Brandenburg and Saxony to join his cause. Also, Tilly's forces of the Catholic League had to deal with a revolt in Magdeburg, which was a strategically important city. So, on one hand, Adolphus could have been seeing that, well, I need to set up a base here, I need to consolidate control, and, and the Catholic League forces are busy over in Magdeburg, so I can take a little bit of time here. But also, at the same time, he could have moved and forced Tilly to combat quickly before the Imperial armies could react to the Swedish landing. Ultimately, Gustavus Adolphus decided to winter in Pomerania and Mecklenburg, and, but in Rothenburg's view, Sweden missed a great opportunity for an early victory and a resounding rallying cry for the Protestants. So it, it's kind of interesting, actually, because in, in when I was doing research for this podcast, I, I had read that Adolphus was known for being kind of, a, kind of impetuous uh, because on the battlefield, he actually, he actually participated in battle and he fought and everything. And sometimes people would be telling him to come back, like, don't, don't go so far don't go so far forward and he was getting shot at he got wounded a few times and but it's kind of interesting how now he's he's taking his time he's being being very cautious but during the winter of 1630 adolphus did indeed try to lure tilly's army by conducting minor operations in western mecklenburg and along the older river and tilly finally moved to face adolphus a few months later in march 1631 so, and Adolphus's reluctance to engage Tilly was actually led to the loss of Magdeburg, and Magdeburg was, was destroyed. Uh, only the cathedral was left, and about 25,000 people were killed. So the great battle between Adolphus and Tilly didn't, didn't happen until September that year, in 1631, at the Battle of Breitenfeld. So actually, I'm not going to give a detailed account of the Battle of Breitenfeld. You can find this in many other places. And one, uh, one book I would recommend for talking about Gustavus in general, but also about the Battle of Breitenfeld itself, is a book by Colonel Trevor Nevit Dupuis, who wrote The Military Life of Gustavus Adolphus, Father of Modern War. So you can check that one out. He goes into a bit more detail about the battle itself. But... I want to talk about Breitenfeld and another battle soon after, but it's focusing especially on Gustavus's use of uh, tactics and how the new reforms in the army helped him win these battles. So at Breitenfeld, he, there were imperial writers, and writers were uh, riders on huge horses. And again, remember I mentioned the, the Kerakol, where horses came up, 
They came up to uh, the Swedish forces at Breitenfeld and they fired pistols, turn around, and then the next line of horses comes up, fires again. This is happening at about 30 yards or 100 feet or so, and then they just keep going around. So they keep doing that circle. So what happened is the Swedes, along with, along with Swedish musketeers, they, they charged in with light cavalry and attacked the Imperial cavalry, which was with heavy horses, and they were a lot slower. And, and so this showed the superiority of mobility and shock versus large horses that were doing rather ineffective, undamaging pistol attacks. So while the large horses are going around shooting pistols, not really charging or smashing into lines, but the, the light cavalry is going in and charging the heavy cavalry with, with, with shock, uh, shock and attack. And so then the Imperial left flank was eventually destroyed. And so fast Swedish cavalry was key in winning this battle. So this shows how mobility was was key in a uh, in wartime with that we're getting we're getting into wartime with some basic guns. We're getting into cannons. We're getting into uh, gunpowder battles. And so mobility here is key. Being able to move fast and take down any heavier heavier targets. So this is this is where mobility is kind of coming into play here. Is, so it's not so much about large formations. This is about mobility, flexible formations, and movement. So after the Battle of Breitenfeld was won, surprisingly, Adolphus didn't immediately take the opportunity to pursue Tilly's defeated forces. Instead, the Swedish king marched into a good strategic position between the Bavarians and the Habsburgs, and he placed troops at Erfurt, which was a hub in Germany's road network. And he, he gets some criticism for not finishing Tilly off at Breitenfeld. But he was wise in a way to set up a strong base from which he was later able to remove Bavarian, Spanish, and Habsburg forces, which were assembled near the Rhine River. And by October 1631, he was ready to prepare, uh, he was ready to perform a grand operation, an operation which, if successful, would bring him to Vienna, while other armies would keep enemy forces bottled up in the Germany's northwest and protect Swedish lines of communication. Unfortunately, this he wasn't really strong enough with his forces to attack Vienna, and Gustavus's recruitment plans for this operation were unsuccessful, and his men were too spread out for such an ambitious operation. Although he did win another battle, which I mentioned just briefly. So this is a battle of the Battle of Lech River. And so I want to just talk about this one where there was Swedes on one side of the river and they had to cross to meet Tilly's forces. And so what they did was, so they had to build a bridge. But what did they do? You know, bridge builders are very vulnerable. So what Gustavus did, they put, he put 70 Swedish cannons on the left bank of the river and supported, and so these supported the bridge builders. So they were able to fire while the, um, while the bridge builders were able to do their work. And so eventually the Swedish forces were allowed to cross. And there's a story as well that he would, um, he would give some, a sum of money to each, to guys that make it across that bridge. But with the cannons and muskets, they were able to create a crossfire that destroyed any Imperial attacks on the Swedish beachhead. And Gustavus won this battle as well. This one where Swedish artillery was the key, working in conjunction with the musketeers, uh, with the musket guns, and also with the bridge builders as well. So, but now by April 1632, Albrecht von Wallenstein was reinstated as the leader of the Imperial forces 
and he was assembling an army near Moravia. On September 3rd and 4th, 1632, after weeks of hesitation on both sides, Adolphus attacked Wallenstein and actually suffered a heavy defeat. Wallenstein moved against, Saxon, moved against Saxony, which by now was a Swedish ally, and if Saxony was defeated, they would cut off, this would cut off Adolphus's communication lines back home to Sweden. Adolphus made a desperate march north to stop Wallenstein, and he moved, his army moved 270 miles in 20 days, but imperial raids and logistical problems weakened his army. In November 1632, Wallenstein decided to winter his army, and this time Adolphus did not hesitate to attack, believing that God had opened the door for him to defeat the Catholic general. And the Great Battle of Lützen had just begun. Adolphus did not have Saxon allies with him, but Wallenstein received reinforcements as the battle raged. Despite these setbacks, Sweden did win the battle, however, the cost of Sweden was great. She lost her king. Adolphus had been shot on horseback as he charged to rally his army's right flank. Rothenberg suggests that Adolphus's dreams of setting up a base of control in Germany were doomed to fail. This is because the communications and agricultural situation made Adolphus's ambitious, wide-ranging military campaign unrealistic in some ways. Large-scale campaigns take a long time to succeed, and they are rare, they're rarely won quickly, especially since troop movements were slow during Adolphus's time. The Swedish king's hesitation to engage the enemy was a personal weakness, as demonstrated by his slow-moving conduct along the Oder River and his failure to take the opportunity of the revolt in Magdeburg. The Swedish king's reputation as a protector of German Protestants suffered for this reason. Furthermore, critics can shake their heads at Adolphus's decision not to pursue Tilly's broken forces after the Battle of Breitenfeld. Yet, despite these failures, Rothenberg glorifies Gustavus Adolphus as a, quote, outstanding commander of the Thirty Years' War. Adolphus's hesitation sometimes hurt him, but it also saved him from performing foolish maneuvers. He would only fight when the conditions favored him or when he absolutely had to, such as when Wallenstein attacked Saxony. Even though Gustavus Adolphus's advisors urged Adolphus to advance on Vienna while Wallenstein wreaked havoc in Saxony, the king refused because, the Sax because Saxony was more valuable to Sweden than Vienna was to the imperial forces. Also, the Swedish king's slow movements in Germany allowed him to establish a strong base of operations to the point of having control of the Rhineland. Also, we must never forget Adolphus's military reforms, which emphasized mobility, combination of armament, uh, ease of movement. Right, so now that warfare was changing, we're moving away from these clumsy so-called Spanish formations, and then we're moving towards mobility and action combined arms. And the reforms left Adolphus gifted with an army that was deadly to the mercenary, mostly mercenary armies of the Habsburgs and Holy Roman and the Catholic side of the Holy Roman Empire. And after the Battle of Breitenfeld, the Catholic side tried to develop an artillery system equal to that of the Swedes, but these efforts were mostly fruitless. And Rothenberg gives Adolphus further credit by calling the Swedish king a true practitioner of warfare, not merely a theorist. Remember, Gustavus was out there on the battlefield, even to the point of uh, almost foolishness and even getting killed at his last battle. And one final aspect of Gustavus Adolphus should be analyzed to get a better idea of why he was so successful. This is the aspect of character. Like any great military leader, character was very important to Adolphus's leadership. This is why it deserves so much attention. 
and he was one of those that was well suited to both kingship and commanding armies. He was raised to know both the mil royal and military life. When he was a very young child, he played in his father's father Gustav, Gustav Vasa's study while affairs of state continued around him. When Adolphus was six, he went on campaign with the Swedish soldiers. And in his teens, Adolphus was even able to receive ambassadors by himself. This early training in kingship would have helped Adolphus militarily, as it taught him how politics works, and of course, warfare and politics are very strongly linked. And I didn't go into details here, but there's, there's also, if you look further into the conduct of the Swedish campaign in Germany, there's also, he's, he's trying to develop friendships with the local Protestant, Protestant electors. So politics are very important to keep in mind there. Gustavus was professional and competent. It was not wise to waste his time, and he became furious when courtiers took advantage of him. The king demanded performance and obedience. The constant drilling and strict system of discipline that he in instituted in the army shows these parts of his personality. And Adolphus is known for having a strong self-confidence and unwavering belief in his pursuits. This would not only make him a good leader, but it helped him during the Thirty Years' War. Unlike Wallenstein, whom O'Connell labels as a, as a personification of military capitalism, Adolphus molded the Swedish army to bend to his own royal will, the will of the state. Through propaganda and appealing to the ideals of the time, the Swedish king was able to get his army behind him. When Sweden invaded Germany in 1630, Adolphus and his army knew exactly what their goals were, and this alone gave them an advantage over the mercenary armies roaming through Europe. Adolphus did not only have strong beliefs and, and capability, he also generally cared for his soldiers. He made sure that the men had enough food and clothing, even when money was running out or the logistical system broke down. The fact that he, he commanded uniforms to be, well, uniform, common throughout the army, allowed him to create that sense of camaraderie and belonging. And Adolphus took time to build up camaraderie with his men, in which inherently built loyalty. C.V. Wedgwood says that he would sweat and starve, freeze and thirst with his men. And Adolphus was no stranger to the hardships of campaigning. Again, in C.V. Wedgwood's words, all of the soldiers alike were subjects of the king and all alike his fellow soldiers. He was their sovereign, their general, almost their god. Sweden's fighters loved their king. And when Adolphus died at Lutzen, his professional soldiers and even, even his mercenaries are said to have felt heavy sadness. Gustavus Adolphus's great campaign in Germany was not as successful as he had hoped. He was dead by the end of it, and his ambition to make Germany a base of operations was ultimately unsuccessful. Yet the king of Sweden's military reforms forged an army enslaved to his will. He was the army's supreme authority. His ideas on tactics, constant drilling, professional army unit, artillery units, standardization of weaponry and calibers, and the use of mixed arms brought him success on the battlefield. So these elements put together, his reforms, mobility, standardization, has caused some scholars to call Gustavus Adolphus the father of modern warfare. 
Well, that's all I have for the podcast today. Thank you very much for listening, and um, I apologize for the long delay. Uh, it's been, I kind of want to aim for about two podcast episodes a month, but uh, this month has been quite busy and everything, so life happens, right? So, um, so but thanks a lot for listening, and uh, stay tuned for more. I'm still working on that Russian Cities uh, history project, but that's a long-term project, so, uh, but I still plan to, of course, work on other episodes in the meantime. So, Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned and have a great one.